Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. It's another veterinary episode this time. I'm really excited to be uh, talking to Gareth Steele, who is the author of this very good book that I recently finished called Never Work With Animals, The Unfiltered Truth About Life as a Vet. So Gareth, thanks thanks for joining me. Um, It's great to finally connect. It's taken us a while, hasn't it? Yeah, no, it's great to finally get around to recording the the podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled, first of all, you read the book and uh, secondly, um, I hope you're telling the truth when you said you enjoyed it, but I, I certainly, yeah, I hope, you, I hope you liked it. I did, I did. I went on holidays recently and finally had time to sit down and read a book on the plane and things like that. So, yeah, it was very good. I, uh, It's a book that I've talked about writing myself, in a way, for quite a number of years, but I figured I might wait until, um, until I leave the veterinary profession <laughs> to, to write my version. You call it the unfiltered truth about life as a vet. How uh, How unfiltered is it? Were you holding back on anything? Or? Well, uh, well, I mean, there's a chance I might have to leave the veterinary profession. Uh, you might get kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, I've tried to be as honest and as candid as I can be. At the same time, obviously, I have to preserve client confidentiality, um, you know, and the same for colleagues as well. So, that, you know, there's a couple of moments in there where I'm not particularly getting on well with a colleague, and I want you to be honest about that, but it wouldn't be fair to be overly critical of somebody who can then be identified uh, so I've tried to be as truthful as possible, but like anyone writing a book, it has to be readable. So, um, you know, I, I've got to try and keep the rants to the, the absolute bare minimum. Yeah, yeah. And just tell us about the book. Like, what is it? What is it covering? Um, what are the kind of main themes in it? Right. So um, the basically each chapter is almost kind of standalone. So what I've tried to do is tell a, a sort of funny story or, well, a, a certainly a true story. Some of them are funny. Some of them are a little more sad. But uh, each story kind of leads on to the discussion of usually some point around around ethics so whether that be for example euthanasia of animals who are suffering or whether that's how we how we manufacture food for ourselves and the production of, of meat um, but I've tried to use the story as a kind of entertaining gateway into sort of discussing that for maybe the last couple of pages of each story uh, that that's been the idea around it so raising awareness I suppose both of what it's like for us as vets working uh, and also trying to elevate the public's consciousness around uh, animal welfare as well yeah, yeah. No, I like it. It tackles some um, pretty tricky topics and topics that maybe have the ability or potential to offend either clients or, as you say, your previous colleagues or um, the veterinary profession in general. You know, there's some tricky topics in there, but it's it's done really well in an honest way. And I think true storytelling is a great way to do that. Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, I did actually speak to my wife about it. I did say, look, you realise that you know, the, the, not everyone is going to like this book. And to some extent, you're sticking your head above the parapet to certain, you know, to some degree. Uh, hopefully most people, even if they don't agree, they, they get the principle. I'm, I'm trying to be balanced. I'm trying to be fair and trying to tackle. Ultimately, a lot of these topics are complicated. There aren't necessarily easy solutions. And it's trying to find the least harm we can do. And sort of we, you know, finding a way around all those things that might sort of trip us up to try and find the best solution. Yeah, yeah. Before we delve into some of those topics, like how long have you been thinking about writing this book? Oh, God, probably about four years from the first time I put sort of pen to paper, as it were, to, to fruition. And it started out very much as I was working abroad. I had a bit of spare time and I started to kind of 
I started to kind of type up some of the stories that I'd probably told in the pub one too many times, things that people had laughed at. And I thought, well, you know, I'll write some of these down. Maybe, maybe there's something in it. And then over time, the book kind of evolved a bit more to become rather than just a collection of funny stories. I realized that ultimately I realized that I was going to have a chance to speak to the public in some capacity and that actually had a bit of responsibility to use that. So that's when the book kind of evolved more into its final format. Yeah. Yeah. Did you enjoy the writing process or was it a bit of a, a chore or? I enjoyed bits of it. Yeah. So yeah. I think like any, anyone writing anything, I think I had those moments where I could sit down and I could, you know, just about write a chapter, you know, straight away. Cause it was just, it was just on the tip of my tongue. Everything was flowing. All the various parts of my brain were kind of working in concert. And then I had the days where I'd sit down and I'd have, you know, maybe a couple of hundred words that I didn't particularly like to show for maybe eight hours of work. And that's, that's incredibly frustrating. And I did have the odd day where I, I did, I did consider giving up, but, um, by that point, I had a contract, so I had to, I had to finish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, we talked just before we recorded about your kind of reluctant uh, kind of promotion. You've had, you've signed up to Twitter since, and you've uh, probably been told by your publisher that you need to do a little bit of uh, self-promotion. Has that been uh, comfortable, or are you, like, over it now? <laughs> no, I must admit, I find that quite uncomfortable. Um, I'm, I'm, I am getting a little more used to it. I, I don't think I'd ever really want to have that, you know, a really elevated public profile. Um, but yeah, I, I've got a little more used to it. And I think I'm just about at the stage where I can reliably post on Instagram without completely uh, mucking it up. I only have to ask my wife for occasional bits of advice now, uh, whereas before <laughs> I was completely clueless, you know, I was like, what does this button do? How do you do this? How do you put photograph in? I was just a total, yeah. total neophyte, completely yeah. useless. What's a real, all that kind of stuff, yeah? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> What's a story versus a post, I think, was a classic Instagram one. I just couldn't get my head around that at all. Yeah, I know. We've all been there. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, What's been the reaction so far? Have you been any surprises or are you kind of um, getting good to reactions? To be fair, it's been lar- it has largely been positive, in fairness. And it's one of these things where I guess I imagined that I'd be very, very chilled out about it. But certainly in the first couple of weeks the book was out, you know, I couldn't help but scroll through amazon and you know as soon as there was another review you know it'd be like oh god there's right it's 111 reviews right what's what's the new review and I, i'd find myself clicking on it and reading on it and of course if, if that happens to be five stars then you know your confidence sto- soars but you know if it's if it's that one star review that's come in then uh you know obviously that's that could be pretty <laughs> crushing in the initial phases yeah it, it dents the ego a little bit right yeah no doubt no doubt. yeah yeah i i did put a book out a few years ago and yeah there was one or two reviews i was like that's not fair <laughs> that's not what i meant <laughs> there's you always know? the old person who just i think there's i think as well like just the fact it is online i think people are just a bit meaner than perhaps they would be to your face yeah um, so there's just that temptation i think if people they maybe read one sentence they don't like and they're just like right that's it you know you're getting one star um so it's, it can be unforgiving at times no doubt yeah yeah for sure and um, well most of the things i've seen have been positive and i've talked to a few people who've read it as well and, and they're all fairly positive about it what were if there was any was there any topics that you were a bit wary about writing about uh yeah so i mean certainly um the story about prince which leads into sort of alternative medicine and things like that um I don't want to come across as too judgmental. I, I think there's definitely. I, I'm. I genuinely am quite open-minded about sort of alternative medicine and stuff. But I need to see the evidence, basically. Uh, and I think in in many instances, and and actually, vets get a little bit of a bad name in this. In, in terms of people, often think that our reluctance to to go with alternative medications is largely a, a product of financial um, incentives. But 
in my experience, it's largely incentive of the vets wanting to offer treatments that they, they genuinely believe are going to be effective. Uh, and I've seen a lot of people who have come in and they, they spent a substantial amount of money on products from online, from alternative medications. And maybe if they just come straight in, they wouldn't be facing an animal that's got a, a long-standing or chronic problem. So yeah. I'm just trying to get across, you know, basically go and see your vet and trust that they're going to do, they're going to try their best. They're not all going to be right all the time, but we're almost always trying. Yeah, yeah. That was the example I had for this question of the kind of homeopathy section with Prince. Um, do you think as well, I think that does drive up the cost sometimes because the animals had delayed uh, treatment, doesn't it? And it's like, yeah, you, know, you yeah, have to definitely. do more then or you have to spend more to actually get a diagnosis and treatment back on track. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the classic is that, you know, the, well, I mean, Prince is a bit of a classic there, but the, the animal's got sore ears and, you know, it presents two or three weeks down the line and, you know, they, they've tried various concoctions that they've got from various places and, and ultimately that year has been swollen and infected and getting worse for three weeks. So you can imagine that's going to take a lot longer to get back to normal, whereas actually if they come in in the first couple of days, you know, perhaps, you know, it, it, that year could have been solved in, in five days and really they, they wouldn't have to spend a lot of money and it would be returned to the norm much quicker. Yeah, yeah. Um, I notice in the book, like a, a lot of it is quite sympathetic to the client, you know, and as we talked about before, sometimes vets don't do a good job of, or don't have time perhaps to do a good job of explaining things. And I think most of the conflicts between clients and vets tend to be through lack of communication or miscommunication. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, unfortunately, you know, vets are often very frustrated with the lack of understanding from clients. And I mean, I include myself in that. I can be like that sometimes. And I'd probably come across as more sympathetic in the book than I would do if you asked me the question in the pub. You know, I'm sure it would probably be a lot less sympathetic in that environment. But, you know, often actually the, the problems that there are, you know, we've got to take some responsibility for them. You know, maybe we haven't explained terribly well. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, the client doesn't understand. I had a lady actually just the other day who I'm not sure whether it was just the question of her hearing wasn't really great. And I think actually she might have had a little bit of genuinely, a little bit of senility. And it was incredibly difficult to to communicate with her. And I'm quite sure she probably went home pretty frustrated that I hadn't communicated very well. But at the same time, you know, I felt quite frustrated that I, that I couldn't communicate with her effectively. And there's no easy solution to that. No, no. And we're often giving, I guess, challenging decisions or challenging information and, and things like that. Um, the the chapter you did on the kind of um, difficulties of TB testing and the conflicts that, you know, you can have with a farmer, basically, you know, condemning his herd um, because he's had a positive TB yeah. reactor and, and that's his livelihood and things like that. Can you just talk a little bit about the challenges there where it's not the kind of pet relationship, but it's actually like serious economic and livelihood um, kind of conversations that you're having? Yeah. So my first job was in Northern Ireland and I'll be honest, I'm not sure if it's still the case. I get the sense there still is a massive problem over there with TB. Uh, but certainly that was the case at the time. And, you know, farmers whose hairs were testing positive, it meant that, largely speaking, they were going to lose their entire herd. Uh, all the animals would be slaughtered. They'd then be subject to restrictions. So even if they had animals on other properties, they can't sell those. If they can't sell those, then they haven't got a cash flow. Therefore, you know, they, they can't buy um, they can't buy feed stuff to feed the animals. You know, they can't invest in, in more equipment and so on and so forth. So it puts them in incredibly difficult financial circumstances but 
in, in a way, that's almost the kind of the lesser of two evils because it, some of these people, they are third, fourth, fifth generation farmers and you might well find that they've inherited a herd from their, their father or, or whoever and ultimately they've been building towards some kind of ideal they've got in mind and suddenly all of that is taken away from them overnight. So, you know, you've got the, you've got the financial problem but then you've also got the, the plan that person had for their future and yeah. the plan they had for their business and that's been taken from them as well. And of course, it does set vets rather, sorry, at odds with farmers to a certain extent, because we're there in a, you know, in theory, in a governmental capacity. But at the same time, we tend to often be going out to farms where we're also their private vet. So there's a there's an odd dynamic at play where you're both the representative of the government there as an impartial advisor, or it's rather a partial tester to see if there's TB there. But also you might have a personal relationship with a farmer who, and, and a commercial relationship with a farmer. So the whole thing's fraught with a lot of difficulties in terms of communication for, for both parties, to be fair. And I think that's, that's really, really difficult, especially for young vets. Mm. It's a hard position. Yeah, yeah. And I think you did talk about that kind of distrust of young vets and, and new graduate vets, you know, people asking for the experienced vet. That's a real challenge, I think, especially for young and recently graduated vets, isn't it? Yeah, that 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 it really is very very difficult, and I, I I think I think maybe that has improved a little bit. Uh, I get the impression that I think just I think just the fact that the internet, the the fact there's more availability of communication so more widely, even in rural areas now, I, I do think some of those kind of older patterns of behaviour are getting broken down a little bit. Um, but I mean, there's always you know there's always those difficult clients that you know vets just dread going out to, even if you're experienced. And of course, when you're a new vet going out to that person and potentially being warned off by the practice that that person is difficult. I, I mean, I can certainly look back on that now and I remember being quite intimidated going to some farms, you know, and quite you know, a lot of performance pressure as well, worrying that if you get it wrong, it's a major client. Are you going to be invited back? Is the boss going to, you know, they're going to back you if it does go wrong, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. We hear as well, obviously, from um, the profession is changing in, in dynamics, like the, the sexism issue as well of, you know, female vets like being a subject, I suppose, to, to quite sexist remarks or um, not trusted to do the, the large animal work and, and things like that, which is a pretty big problem. Well, the thing is, if you don't want to see a female vet, then, you know, these days you're going to have a job finding a vet at all, I think, is, is, is the truth. I mean, my first job, I worked with a lassie who, I mean, I'm, I'm not a very big guy. I'm like sort of 5'5", five, five, and she would probably be about the same size, maybe a little bit shorter. And she didn't, she didn't suffer from it at all in terms of, in terms of her capability. And all that was just because half the time it's just, there's, there's often easy solutions. And yeah, she probably wasn't as physically strong as someone like me, but actually things that you'd probably solve through brute strength and ignorance, she undoubtedly solved just through being a little bit more cunning and probably a little bit smarter than someone like me. So often, you know, if you did happen to be in the same farm, you think, why have I been sweating so hard all the time doing it like that? And actually, she would have just found a really clever solution that would save her from making half the effort. And you think, God, who's yeah, who's more capable here? Yeah, it's, it's definitely not me. I'm the moron, basically. Brains are brawn, right? Well, yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. What are what are the kind of challenges that you've had? Because um, you talk in the book about like you know you've been practicing over twenty years now, and you still largely love what you do. And we know that actually there's a big departure rate or burnout rate within the veterinary profession. People leaving. You know, I left clinical life for an industry role after uh, six years. That's becoming a, a big problem. What yeah. would you say are kind of? Did you have any moments where you thought? 
I need to jack this in. This isn't for me or any kind of crisis points in your career. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I would say, oh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm a reluctant vet, although I did actually consider that as a title for the book at one point. But, you know, I've done a few other things as well. I've spent a bit of time in the military or on, you know, at times, you know, for maybe up to six months a year. So I've had breaks from the profession. And I think in truth, that has actually, that has made it possible for me to be in a position, in the profession for 20 years. I think, if I put my hand on my heart, I think if I didn't have those breaks away from it, uh, I'm not convinced I would still be in veterinary medicine. Uh, I think you've, I think you've got to find that balance, uh, and that might mean you know taking. It might mean that you can manage just having you know hobbies and so on that take your mind away from it or let you explore other avenues. But I think for some people, it might mean that actually it's only feasible for them if they do take career breaks and and so on um, or you know flexible working something like that it's going to say working more flexibly like locoming or things like yeah. that short, short I, I, and i think genuinely I, I think the pressure on young vets now is it's as high as it's ever been if, if i look at okay granted when you know when i graduated we perhaps didn't you know that sort of mental health wasn't so much at the forefront of the profession's mind and there was a little bit more of an attitude of you just had to get on with it but at the same time, less was expected of us. The, the reality is that there were less drugs available, so there were less procedures available to us. Public expectations weren't so high. So, you know, I think the reality is the balance now is, yeah, okay, there are some things for newer vets that are easier, but I think all told, they are probably under even more pressure than we were. I was going to say it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? That like universities are teaching us everything gold standard and referral level, referral hospital level. And yeah. as as that's being seen more often within practice and kind of arguably glorified on television programs and things like that. Yeah. The public are expecting kind of human grade medical care for their pets and insurance has allowed them to get that, but it has caused an issue with kind of client expectations versus reality. And of course that cost problem as well, right? Yeah, enormously. Um, so, I mean, insurance has drastically changed small animal medicine in terms of people's access to healthcare, but it's also meant that people who don't perhaps have a lot of money or don't have great insurance, they are comparing what they can get to that gold standard, perhaps what they see on television, and they can only be left a, a bit disappointed. And, you know, if you're the vet that's having to deliver that kind of disappointing result that you can only deliver this within their, their budgetary constraint, that's quite difficult for the vet. It's quite difficult for the owner but I think sometimes because people are unaware of the cost of their health care, often they tend to think that, that that blame perhaps lies with the vet, that, you know, they could do more if only they weren't so commercially minded. But ultimately, practices have to at least break even or they're going to cease to exist. And then there's then there's no one there to offer that care. Yeah, yeah. We hear it all the time. I was just doing some training the other day with um, some people from Tales.com and someone asked at the end, like, why is it so expensive? Why do I have to pay £45 to go to the vet? And you know, there was nothing wrong with my dog. And it's like trying to explain that there isn't an NHS and that 45 quid doesn't go into the vet's pocket as soon as you close the door behind him or her. And it's about running the practice and having a team and having all the facilities and things should you need them. It's a difficult message to get across, isn't it? Because I think general consensus with the public is vets are expensive. Vets are, are you know, yeah. a rip off we hear all the time. Um, how can we do better? Do you, do you have the answer or do you have any thoughts on how we can have that conversation more openly? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, to be fair, that was part of what I was trying to achieve in the book. And there, I mean, what a couple of the reviews that I have seen on Amazon, ones that were a bit more negative, one of the big things he said was maybe there was a little bit too much 
sort of technical language in there. Okay. Which is, which is a reasonable criticism. The flip side of that is what I was trying to demonstrate was actually that we do know a lot about a lot of these things and that you're perhaps getting much more from your vet than you imagine. They're, you know, the, the selection of what antibiotic they're going to use, the treatment they're going to administer or the surgery they're going to carry out. Actually, there's a lot of thought process going on in the background that the client doesn't really see. And I was trying to get some of that on paper so they could, so people could understand, well, actually, hang on a minute, there's an enormous amount of effort behind the scenes here that I'm, that I'm not party to. So even talking about I think I mentioned in one of the chapters that, you know, I'd bought a couple of textbooks and so on. Again, that's all invisible to the client unless we communicate it to them. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe drawing the comparison with with other career streams, you know, if you if you take the car, to, I mean, so I would liken, for example, blood tests and so on to you take the car to the garage and they plug it into a, so they connect to the diagnostics machine. And obviously there is a charge for that because those machines cost thousands of pounds. Yeah. Um, so I guess trying to draw that comparison with other career streams that where people do pay to try and say, well, look, you know, if you take your vehicle to the garage and they do some diagnostics and they take it all apart and they say, actually, you know, it's a very simple thing. You've got to expect to pay for the, the mechanics time, for the use of the machinery, for the garage, the heating, the lighting and so on. I think what sets us apart and makes it more difficult is that there is a real life involved. Um, so unlike saying to someone, hey, listen, you know, we've done the estimates, your your new carpet is going to be this much and they decide they can't afford it and ultimately have to make do what they've got. Unlike our position where ultimately you're saying, hey, look, I, I understand, you know, your animals, it needs this procedure or ideally it would have this procedure and it's this much and you can't afford it. That's quite a different ethical proposition. And I think that in itself is a very, very hard thing to get across to people. And I think the NHS, unfortunately, which is, you know, I, I'm a great believer in the NHS. That is put, is it, we are the, unfo- the unintended victims of it because people don't understand, you know, what it costs to deliver that healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, it's like an animal and a part of your family is, it's not an object. Uh, so, no. you know, you can't say, right, we'll replace it with a cheaper one. You know, if I can't afford that carpet, I'm going to go for this carpet. And I have considered saying like- that with a couple of my own pets, to be fair. But uh- have you? <laughs> <laughs> You've accumulated some uh, some special needs ones, I'm sure. Have you? Yeah, over th- over time, we've had a few. Uh, we've had a few special uh, a few special clients. Yeah, sure. Typical uh, veterinary, uh, yeah, pets. And um, the other thing is that you know they don't always perform as the textbooks say they will, or we can't predict the future. We're, we're dealing with a lot of unknowns in veterinary medicine. Our patients aren't talking back to us or telling us what's wrong. Um, so, you know, we kind of, I always say like your pet isn't a, a robot or a, a TV or a machine that we can really predict. It's like, there's a lot of the times when actually they surprise us either, either in a good way or yeah. in, a, in a bad yeah. way. Clients can feel we've, um, we've not done them right. Yeah. So I, I was trying to make that point, actually. I think, um, I think I did discuss the idea of complexity mm. uh, and the idea that, Certainly, you know, certainly with physiology and so on, there's so many unknowns that are going on in the background that we don't even potentially have a useful way to measure that the, the outcome can't be assured. And that, again, that can be quite hard for clients to absorb as well. They often want you to give them that sort of that warm, fuzzy feeling that everyone's going to be fine if they just do the right thing. And of course, we, we know that biological systems, as you said, you know, they constantly surprise us. They do things you don't want them to do. Um, you know, there's... and ultimately there's loads of stuff going on inside that sort of sort of bag of flesh that we, we don't really have a, a good way of, of measuring and so we're, we're just doing the best with the the knowledge that we have and I think that's the thing for vets to understand as well it's easy for us to look back at our predecessors and think that they were you know how, what's, how silly some of their interventions were but 
you know, the next generations of, vet, of vets are going to look back at us and, and wonder that we were so daft because the stuff we're doing now that will be proven to be wrong in some way. Yeah, we're still on a learning curve, aren't we? Yeah, oh, yeah, without, well, yeah, particularly for myself. I think I'm, I'm more on that learning curve than average, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're all there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. What about the kind of um, the animal, some of the animal welfare topics that you touch on in the book? So obviously there's some farm ones that people who aren't raised or grew up around farming wouldn't really know and and that feeds into our kind of food choices and things can you just talk a little bit about kind of food animal welfare first and then we'll we'll tackle maybe some of the companion animal ones for after yeah sure Uh, i mean so i grew up in quite a rural area so a lot of my a lot of my friends growing up were were farmers or, or sons and daughters of farmers so i guess i had a reasonable perspective on that from a young age but of course now the vast vast majority of people are raised in towns and cities they perhaps don't or not necessarily exposed to that kind of that kind of background, unless perhaps they are an aspiring vet or an aspiring farmer or something like that. So they often see animals very much as in the same way you might see a pet or in the same way you might see an animal in the zoo. And you know, perhaps they they think that that commercial relationship is and it can be upsetting. I think that perhaps some people think that it's inappropriate. And of course, you know, we've all got to eat, and um, so we have to find a way of doing that with the kind of doing the minimum of harm. And, and I think I've, I mean, I, I'll be honest and say that my attitude has changed quite a lot since I was at vet school. And I think even some of the things I was taught at vet school, we, we weren't taught that farm animals didn't have, you know, feelings or, or didn't feel pain, but there was a degree of skepticism that they needed things like anti-inflammatories, that they needed pain relief and things like that. Um, and I can look back on that now and think, well, that was, that was definitively wrong, despite the fact yeah. that it was being taught by people who, you know, in some cases had PhDs. So my attitude has shifted quite a lot over time and you wouldn't have to go back that far before I, you know, confess to being pretty sceptical around things like vegetarianism and veganism. And I still have a degree of scepticism for those things in terms of, I, I, you know, I'm not personally convinced that they are the ideal diet for every human. I don't think everyone can do well in those diets. And I know a couple of people who are, who are vegan, who've really struggled uh, mm-hmm. and, they've, and they've had significant health problems because they've had deficiencies and so on. But I think there's no doubt that, the majority of us in the USA, Western Europe, uh, UK, and so on, we eat too much meat. Um, I think yeah. that's I think that's a reasonable supposition. Now, I think we should probably still eat some, but if we ate less, then that would mean we could afford all of those animals. You know, more space, more care, more ability of that to display natural behaviour. And at the same time, I think ultimately that could be better for the environment. And I think what's quite interesting in both the veterinary and the farming world is, you know, I've seen vets who are massively resistant to any idea that sort of meat industry might be, might not be ideal for our environment. You know, I've seen people say, well, look at the hedgerows, you know, they're full of biodiversity. And you know, well, well, yeah, but the hedgerows, you know, that's the perimeter of a field that you've drawn. Yeah. And are you honestly trying to tell me that hedgerow has got the same biodiversity as 10 acres of, of ancient woodland? I mean, that, 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 that's a, that's a fantasy and it's a, it's just a knee-jerk reaction to criticism. Yeah, it's a defensive reaction, isn't it? Um, have you had any kind of, um, I find this one sometimes when I'm talking about this topic where people are like, I don't understand how you are not a vegan if you're a vet. How, how do you love animals if you're a vet? Have you had that one? Well, I mean, I mean, animals are just delicious for starters. I mean, that's one of the major, that's one of the major sticking points in, I think, trying to convert everyone to, uh, to vegetarianism or, or, or veganism. Yeah, I mean, from a from a purely logical point of view, I, that that's a reasonable criticism. 
um, mm. or at least it appears to be a reasonable criticism. Ultimately, humans aren't we we aren't pure logic machines, you know. And I think anyone who anyone who tries to generate policy on the assumption that humans are going to behave purely rationally is ultimately doomed to failure. That's not going to work. What we need to do is is basically perhaps exploits the wrong world word, but you know we've got to leverage human instincts by trying to make the right decision the easiest decision. So. Yeah, I, I don't feel that's an unfair criticism, but no matter how we, no matter how the human race feeds itself, we are going to cause some bad outcomes for some number of animals in some way. So it's just a question of how do we rationally do that to minimise it? Um, yeah, yeah. I guess we're kind of like natural or least harm food production to environment and, and animals and things it does kind of mimic natural ecosystems and you do need plant or you do need animal inputs for mm, yeah. for organic plant production for example if you do away with animal agriculture altogether you know you're talking about throwing synthetic fertilizers and chemicals on on crops and large scale monoculture of crops which obviously has a decimating effect on biodiversity so yeah it does there is a lot of simplistic argument thrown around for this. You know, we should all be plant-based or meat is bad, plant is good. It's like, it's way too simplistic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I asked somebody this recently, actually. They were saying, they, they effectively said, well, look, your plan to have these kind of three loose zones that I'd mentioned in the book of kind of a zone where you say, well, look, nature takes a bit of a backseat in zone one to the, the manufacture of food. Zone two provides your kind of biodiversity and your so genetic repository for, for zone one. And zone three is, is effectively wilderness return to nature. And they said, well, look, th- that's obviously not going to work. And I asked them, well, I said, well, perhaps you're right, but I just, I, I don't, I can't think of another way to feed over 7 billion people. Um, and the, their answer was, they said, well, we've got to maximize our ability to nature. And I was like, okay, well, how does that work as a policy? That, that, that sounds great. It's a lovely soundbite, but great sound bite, what yeah. on earth does that mean? The reality is we can't, the human race can't feed itself by growing plants in window boxes. You know, that that's just, that is not, that's not feasible. So we have to find a way to do that. And I think, I think often the emotions involved in all of it prevent people from coming to good rational solutions. So sometimes we're letting the, the you know, the, the excellent be the enemy of the good or the perfect be the enemy of the good, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. And moving on then into kind of companion animal welfare, one of the reasons I think um, I was reading about recently, the kind of reasons for the veterinary mass exodus that's been happening the last while or um, reasons for kind of burnout, poor mental health, even, you know, veterinary suicide is this issue of moral distress um, Mm. in vets where we can sometimes be put in positions where we feel we're facilitating poor welfare practices. Um, the classic example is, you know, all of the multitude of problems, genetic health problems in pedigree dog breeds. And is the first opinion GP vet tackling that problem or yeah. just facilitating that problem? I certainly felt in clinics towards the end of my time in clinics. I'm just seeing the same problems over and over again. And I'm the fall guy because that client is unhappy with their dog failing. And I could have told them their dog was failing if they are going to fail. They came to me before they bought that puppy. Yeah, so it's kind yeah. of this constant merry-go-round, isn't it, of seeing the 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 animal population or that specific dog breed population declining in health or or maintaining the same health problems and feeling a bit powerless to do anything about it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think that's a... So I think 
there's a couple of so there's the idea of moral injury where you're you, you know you, you want to help but you're restricted by economics or, or practicalities or whatever so ultimately you have this kind of if you like I, I, i'm not i'm not a psychologist but i guess you have this kind of mental tension where you have what you intend to do or what you'd like to achieve versus what you can actually achieve and those two things can sometimes almost be diametrically opposed and that can be tough because you almost come into conflict with yourself you know you're you, like you said it's, it's almost an identity crisis you know you want to feel that you're going to work and you're doing good things and you're you're ultimately making animal welfare better but uh, if you if you keep yeah so if you keep turning up and seeing the same things and again and again and again and you're you're off in the fire brigade you're just there to put out the fire and, and and get on to the next fire rather than perhaps looking at whether or not the building you know could have been constructed differently in the first place so yeah no i, I certainly agree with that I, I must admit i find the particularly the the brachycephalic thing and and various other breeds that have just been effectively ruined in terms of the the animal's individual health over the last perhaps let's say three to five decades by just consistent in breeding selecting for completely the wrong traits so selecting for increasingly extreme appearances yeah which is effectively just a vanity project carried out by humans rather than selecting for good health on, on the part of the animals that's a total catastrophe in my eyes the problem is i i don't think it's an easy solution i'm not a big fan of heavy-handed regulation and mm. i think sometimes that can almost have the opposite from the intended effect and um, yeah. for me, I think frustratingly, it's a long term project, but I think it is going to have to be the result of sort of education and um, persuading people to neuter animals that they really shouldn't breed from. Yeah. Trying to get, you know, try and, and breeders as well are trying to, you know, I mean, I must admit in most of the veterinary world, um, you know, breeders get a bad name. You know, a lot of a lot of vets and nurses can be quite dismissive of breeders, but I've seen breeders who are absolutely excellent. So whilst it should be about calling out what's bad i think we also have to recognize what's good as well and i think we, we probably don't do that enough actually i think as vets we 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 emphasize the bad but i think we're very very slow to recognize what's good yeah that's a good point we talked about this in a previous episode with um rowena packer and Alison skipper on the the brachycephalic flat face breed uh, dilemma um what about kind of the a lot of people don't realize cesarean sections in your part of the world are you are you asked to do many cesarean sections on frenchies and bulldogs and, and things yeah so so west so south and particularly west wales actually there's a lot of dog breeders i think i think quite a lot of people who live rurally some of those people see that as a you know they've got ultimately they've got a bit more they've got a bit more space they've got a bit more land or whatever and they, they see that i think some people see that as a, as a relatively easy way to make money it's not uh, at least it's not if it's done properly uh, yeah. i should say it's not it's not a it's not a it's not an easy um it's not an easy skill um yet we certainly see quite a lot of that i i think quite fortunate actually most of the practice i work for have a, a quite an ethical approach so for mm. example we do basically we do not do elective cesareans as a as a matter of course we i mean i certainly i just refuse partly as an ethical point but actually more as a as a, as a medical stroke practical point that you often find that breeders are, they haven't got dates correct. They perhaps don't actually really understand the biology particularly well. They don't realize that pregnancy might not start at the exact moment that some mummy and daddy dog yeah. gave each other special cuddles. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have jumped on the bandwagon of expensive puppies and, you know, just don't have the appropriate education to, to do that in, a, in an ideal fashion. And it's... Yeah, trying to work. Ultimately, unfortunately, we, we have to work with those people as best we can to try and get a good outcome. And so, again, it's 
Yeah, it's up to the it's up to the vets, I think, to to try and find a way through it. And certainly, I think it is something our governing bodies and stuff could be better on. I think we we could come up with more guidelines to try and point direct vets in the direction of what's appropriate and what's not. Uh, I know it was at Norway banned. I was just going to say Norway banned Cavalier, uh, King Charles, and English Bulldog breeding. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I would be comfortable if we did that in this country. I mean, like I said, I'm not a big fan of heavy handed regulation, but I think the spirit of doing that, I think is, is well intended. Uh, and of course people, you, know, you will hear breeders say things like, oh, it's terrible. This breed will die out. And you're like, yeah, but look, look at what you've made it into. Like it wouldn't be such a tragedy if these animals that can't, they can't walk properly. They can't breathe properly. They can't give birth naturally. Would it be a tragedy if that breed ceased to exist? And I just can't see it that way. I can't agree. I know. It's also like this weird mindset of it being cruel or an animal welfare issue of a breed dying out or a breed being changed. It's like we need to think about the just the individual dogs in that breed. And actually, yeah. an individual dog is really not going to care if there's no future generations of its breed. That's a really yeah. human mindset. And I think... Um, yeah, I think Norway probably brought in that ban or, or use it as a test case to say, if the kennel clubs and breed societies are not going to do this because we've been banging the drum long enough, yeah. then we will get heavy handed about it. And I kind of warned, I did a radio interview around that week when that happened. And I just said, look, this could be coming down the line for the UK. Because yeah. how long have, you know, vets and animal welfare bodies and the press and everything been kind of saying to the kennel club and Crofts? that dog is like horrifically yeah. bred. How are you awarding it in the ring? Did you see the English Bulldog Best of Breed this year? At yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of the, the cost of my newfound presence on Twitter is that you, you, you're you automatically exposed to those kind of things. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a terrible example. I mean, I mean, what would be ideal would be if the vets and the breeders could sit down around the table and hash out a set of breed standards that ultimately moves all of these breeds in a, in a desirable direction towards better health and and I guess something the public perhaps don't understand is that, you know, if vets were just in it for money, well, we're acting against our own best interests. I mean, ultimately, these animals being sick and then having these uh, having cash these cows, problems. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the reality is if you're, you know, if you want to say yourself as a bulldog specialist, then you're potentially going to make a lot of money. But I, you know, I don't, I've never personally met a vet who wouldn't click their fingers and render all those dogs healthy had they the power. So yeah. I, I think it's, it's, I don't think it's fair to, certainly I don't, I don't think money drives our, or largely doesn't drive our kind of opinions around it. Yeah, the ideal solution would be cooperation to make things better. But as you point out, we've been trying to do that for some time and it just hasn't been, uh, there just hasn't been that bilateral effort from the other half of the, 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 the sort of situation as it were. Yeah, I don't do this uh, often, Gareth, but I'm going to defend the Kennel Club a little bit. <laughs> After my discussion in the last uh, one, the Kennel Club does have a habit, I, I think, of deflecting, you know, responsibility and saying, but what about over there? You know, but I think there is a big problem with extreme breeding now that we're seeing outside of the Kennel Club's remit with yeah, the, yeah, um, exotic bullies and fancy colours of Frenchies that are outside the breed standard and things. So I think the breed standard in the Kennel Club is one part of it and they should be leading by example. But we're also seeing, I think, due to like social media, for example, these really outrageously deformed and extreme exaggerated yeah. dogs being bred for large amounts of money and um it's completely out of the control of the the kind of the powers that be isn't it yeah no i think it's reasonable i mean to be fair i do defend the kennel club a little bit in the book by pointing out that you know they have introduced genetic testing for a number of conditions well 
quite a large number of conditions spread across a, a lot of different breeds. And, and that's definitely to, the, to their credit. You've done the right thing there. Uh, I think you're right. I think that actually, I guess social media is almost, I, I think actually for me, it's probably overtaken uh, the breed standards and so on as the, the driver of the extreme appearance of those animals. If you need to look at these um, sort of mini, mini bullies, as they're called. The Exotic bullies, yeah. Got these, you know, they've got enormously wide shoulders, tiny legs, legs, huge heads. And yeah, I mean, I can understand if people look at them and think they're cute, but you know, they're completely unethical. I mean, those animals are not healthy. And yeah, I wish people wouldn't, I wish people wouldn't buy them. The trouble is, of course, each and every one of those dogs that already exists needs a home and and you want it to have a good home and a good life. But if we continue to buy them, then of course there are people who will see that and and they'll exploit it. They'll they'll exploit it for commercial ends. And unfortunately it will be the animals that that ultimately um, pick up the bill. And that's just, it's extremely sad. I wish, I I wish I had the, I wish I had the solution. It's, I think, I think we will get there, but I think it's going to take time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Getting there quicker on the ear cropping uh, issue, hopefully uh, with changes in legislation coming in. Are you seeing that a lot where you, where you are? No, we've seen, I've seen the odd case, the excuse is always used that the, the, you know, the animal, it was imported like that. And of course, we're not the police. It's difficult to get uh, to do much about that. And what can be tricky as well is I, we did have a client a couple of years ago who had an animal with cropped ears. And it was, I can't remember, I think perhaps had a bit of vomiting diarrhea as well. And they brought it in and one of the vets, you know, rightly brought to their attention the fact that it cropped ears and that was illegal um, and I think the guy came back again and the next vet pointed out the same thing. And and we ended up having a little bit in a break of a breakdown in relationship with the guy uh, as a practice. And that was really unfortunate because he himself, I mean, I, in this case, I don't think he he hadn't cropped the dogs of years. He had genuinely imported it and ultimately got to stage where he just, he didn't want to discuss it anymore. And, and actually what happened was we lost our power to make the dog's life better. Mm. So I think, you know, I can totally get why people are really impassioned about these things. I understand why they get annoyed. But I think we've also got to keep focused on the welfare of, of the animal. And sometimes that means that we, you know, we have to put to bed our personal feelings and something and act in the best interest of that dog in the moment. Yeah. Even if there is a wider problem. So that's a really difficult balance because I, I totally understand why people are both impassioned about it and you know potentially angry in the moment. But I think we have to do our best to count to 10 and then try and find a good solution. Yeah, yeah, good advice. Um, we'll delve into one more uh, negative before we put a, a positive spin on the end of things. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to be all doom and gloom, do we? <laughs> but um, I was going to say, you do talk about the mental health issues within the profession and, and the challenges in the profession that, that lead to that. A lot of people that I talk to or kind of mention this or kind of get into a discussion about how veterinary isn't necessarily the job that everyone thinks it is, are very surprised to hear that it does have um, one of the highest rates of suicide. And they kind of can't put two and two together on that. Can you just, you and I obviously have kind of looked into this a lot and talk about it with our colleagues and things, but can we just talk a little bit about the kind of factors that feed into that for people listening who may never have heard that statistic? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I I think I can understand why it's potentially counterintuitive. I, I think... Some of that comes from people's perception of veterinary medicine. And I think in the UK, it's fair to say that that's often very rooted in things like all creatures, great and small, yeah. um, which, you know, you, if you watch that, certainly you can be led to believe that, you know, the vets kind of, you know, sort of drive out and, you know, they see a cow and they might treat that and then they drive somewhere else and they might see a cat and so on. And it's, you know, it's all very, it's all very, it's all carried out in this sort of idyllic countryside and, 
yeah, they have their, their trials and tribulations, but venue has changed drastically since that time. We're, we're, we're no longer in that period. And I guess in a modern context, you're looking at things like the super vet and so on, which you know, someone that knows Fitzpatrick, I mean, he, you know, he's doing amazing work. I mean, he's really, really pushing the boundaries. I'm not sure I agree with everything that's done personally. Mm. No doubt he is moving things forward. But that leaves a kind of gap where you've got, you know, the, the everyday practitioners and, and the reality reality of their lives. And I think that's something that the public generally don't understand. And uh, even the programmes that are about everyday vets, ultimately they have to be entertaining within the constraints of television. And that means that there's only so honest that they can realistically be because they're going to be on again next week. And that was one of the problems I wanted to try and solve was to try and be as, as frank as possible. So, I mean, certainly in terms of the pressures on vets, I mean, you've really touched on one, which is the idea of this moral injury. So a, a conflict between your desire to help and the constraints that are, are placed upon you. And it seems slightly selfish to point out that, for example, well, like I'm not prepared to stay up all night syringing your dog fluids. And that seems that seems quite selfish to that individual owner. But they perhaps don't understand that, you know, there's another four people who might want you to do that tonight. And that means you will not sleep. And that means tomorrow when you come to work, you're exhausted. And, you know, and again, and guess what? Tomorrow night, there's another five people who want you to do that. And ultimately, that that's not sustainable. You will burn out. Um, you know, if nothing else, you'll, you'll, you'll fall asleep in your car, you know. And that's certainly, I mean, that happened to me. That's happened to me. You know, as a mixed practitioner, yeah. you know, I've fallen asleep at the wheel a number of times. Um, and I did wonder who ultimately would be responsible, you know, about if I did cross the central reservation and, and ultimately hurt someone or myself, you think, well, is this my fault? Is it my boss's fault? Is it the profession's fault? Like we're obviously driving people too, too hard. And, and I think we, I think we did wear that as a badge of honor. And I think it's a good thing that we started to break that down a bit and say, actually that's, that's too much. Why are we asking people to do that? Yeah. And then of course, times have changed, you know, the demands in terms of expectation, they've risen enormously. Um, I think probably, faster than people's ability to pay for yeah. it so what we can offer people whereas you know perhaps certainly where i initially saw practice you know if an animal had come in that was was it suffered a spinal injury and it was perhaps paralyzed it certainly its rear limbs or something realistically it might have had a couple of days with some anti-inflammatories and some nursing and then we would probably have accepted that we'd reach the limits of what we could do and, and the animal would be put down and nobody would be happy but everyone in the situation would probably be satisfied that they tried their best. It's the right thing, yeah. But of course now, you know, we have people who, you know, their animal needs decompressive surgery, emergency decompressive surgery, and it's not a surgery I have either the the skill or the equipment to carry out. And those people, you know, obviously want referral, and if they can't afford it, then can't have it. And that's that's awful news to deliver to anyone. And of course, I think whilst for every individual owner, it's a tragedy for them, what people don't perhaps perceive is that you as a vet might see, you might see five or 10 tragedies a day, um, every day. So every sort of tragic set of circumstances for an owner, yet bad as it is for them, all of that's arriving at your veterinary practice and that individual person might be dealing with it, you know, every 15 minutes. And yes, I think for some people that stacks up and, you know, ultimately if you can't put it to bed at night or forget about it or, you know, have a couple of whiskeys or whatever, that's going to bother you. Yeah. That's really going to bother you. Yeah. Many's the time I, I drove home in the car replaying an argument or a discussion or I should have said that or why didn't they understand me? You know, And I'm like, yeah, Sean, yeah. you're not at work now. And that conversation didn't happen. <laughs> Stop over-analyzing. Yeah. That's not what you yeah, said. Yeah. And you can't drive back and say like, 
and another yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you have to develop healthy mechanisms. I think the other, the last thing on that um, is kind of good, good summary of all those factors, but also the barrier to euthanasia for vets is quite a unique thing because we're the only medical professions using euthanasia, putting pets to sleep on quality yeah. of life grounds. So we hear that, you know, if someone's chronically not well um, mentally, they can see that as a, a way out um, that a doctor or dentist maybe doesn't have that available to them or it's not in their mindset as much. Yeah, yeah. I think the euthanasia thing is really interesting in terms of obviously it's, you know, it can be very, it can be terrible for that family. And I think often people feel uh, a lot of guilt over it and a lot of anxiety over it. And I don't think they should, you know, I, th- I think we could view that a little bit differently. Mm. In fact, in fact, I think we should view it differently. I think that if your pet no longer has a, a quality of life worth worth the term, I actually think it, 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 it's, it's the last kind thing you can do for yeah. them is to usher them into the sort of great unknown at the right time when, you know, they, they no longer have what you would consider to be a, a good quality of life. And although it's difficult for you, I think, it, you know, we can perhaps change the kind of conversation and say, well, that that's a good thing. It's your duty to that animal. You really do. You really are doing the right thing for them. And you know, I think I again I've said it in the book and said, well, I'm I'm not personally religious, but you know, we do. We really don't know what happens after this. And you know, I, I hope there is somewhere where you know all the all the hopefully the understanding dogs yeah. are uh, are located and and everyone's you know we're all there and we're all healthy and we're all whole and we can all just enjoy each other's company um, with our with our pets who are who are also. Uh, made made well again that, that'd be fantastic I, I genuinely hope that's true i don't think it is but you never know yeah yeah all right let's turn it into into a positive um you've been a vet over 20 years uh what are the the bits of the job that you absolutely love i think um i think when you go in an animal that's that's, that's really significantly ill and especially when you have a, a family um that are really worried about it and I've had this with young families with kids and equally I've had it with older people who, you know, perhaps that pet's their only companion and returning that animal to full health and being able to make that family whole again. I, I think, you know, that's a, that's a thrill I, I don't think I'll ever lose. I think whatever I do, I doubt I will ever completely stop doing clinical practice for that very reason. I think that's a bit of the job that that keeps you doing it is that ability, your ability, your skill to achieve that. I think that, I think that's something special that we should, if you don't really hold on. Definitely. To. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, would you have any advice just to close then for people who are thinking of entering the vet profession? So young youngsters, basically. I don't do it. I don't, just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's often mine too. <laughs> if they're dead, set on um, it. what's your, what's your best advice? I, I think that I, I think, I think the big thing is, Try and get a really good handle on what it is that you're, what it is you're getting into, mm. and I think that can be positive, negative. Make sure that you really, and to be fair, I mean this advice is not just relevant to veterinary medicine; things relevant to everything is ultimately try and get as good a picture as you possibly can about your your future employment, and and maybe also consider we all tend to think about veterinary medicine very much as the, as the clinical portion, but, you know, perhaps go and see some other things, you know, go and see academia, you know, go and see OVs doing their job and so on and so forth. And perhaps try and figure out like what, what part of it you get a thrill out of and, and what part of it where in the profession you, you know, you might fit in where you, and I think truthfully, the, the part of the profession that you're going to make most impact on is probably the part of the profession that you're going to enjoy the most as well so you know try and figure out what you're passionate about what floats your boat what you enjoy and then you know and then you know try and try and try and maneuver towards that i think yeah 
Yeah, good advice. Mine is also don't be afraid that your career might uh, go in often different directions and you might change your mind in five, 10 years um, and, and do something different. But uh, no, I, I mean, I think that's a big thing is that ultimately, if for whatever reason, you know, any medicine turns out to be what you want to do for the rest of your life, yeah. that's completely fine. You know, it, it certainly shouldn't be seen as failure that people's circumstances change, life changes. Sometimes you feel like you've done something to the best of your ability and you've gone as far as you can and, and or you just encounter another, you know, something else that you're just as passionate about and you want to explore that. So, yeah, yeah I don't think you should feel that it has to be lifelong. It should be something you, you do as to the best of your ability for yeah. as long as it makes you happy. Absolutely. Yeah. In my experience as well, it, it sets you up with a lot of transferable skills and a, a good basis for doing lots of different things in life, doesn't it? Well, one of the things I didn't appreciate when I was at vet school was I didn't appreciate what an amazing general science degree it actually is. Mm. I mean, in fairness, that's probably because I spent a significant amount of time in the pub and not at vet school. <laughs> um, but uh, I certainly would say, looking back now, you know, it's it's, it's an incredible general science degree, and uh, it could, you know you can certainly take you. I mean, as you've demonstrated, you know, there's, there's plenty of other things that you can do with it, and exciting, and especially nowadays, exciting opportunities to to do other stuff in one health or conservation or move into other areas of science so yeah 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 cool well gareth thank you so much i think we've uh we've kind of hit the limit of of maybe what people are willing to listen to nearly an hour now um certainly for me i think i think most people by now are getting bored of my my voice i think i don't know i don't know um but look thanks so much um the book is out now where can people buy it never work with animals uh, so in preference, go to your local bookshop and buy it there. Uh, obviously, I prefer our local bookshops to still be around for a while yet, but uh, it is available on Amazon, Waterstones, all the kind of big, uh, all the big names. Um, and if you're really, really struggling, then uh, somehow get in touch with me and I'll, I'll get a copy to you. Brilliant. Thanks so much and best of luck with it. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Thanks, Sean. My pleasure. No worries. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast, guys. If you did like it, it'd be great if you would hit like and subscribe and uh, maybe even leave us a review, which will get us to more listeners. So it's over and out for now. And thanks again to Gareth.